This is the Hacker Valley Studio Podcast, exploring the human element behind cybersecurity programs and technology. If you work as a cybersecurity leader, you might have the sentiment that compliance sucks. The traditional manual requests such as screenshots, spreadsheets, long meetings with auditors, really it's not a great experience. But luckily there's ByteCheck, a platform designed to make compliance suck less. With ByteCheck, you can establish your security program, automate your readiness assessment, and complete your SOC 2 examination faster, all from one single platform. Built with a robust set of integrations that connect to apps you use every single day. The ByteCheck integrations eliminate traditional manual evidence requests. The ByteCheck platform is powered by the ByteCheck engine, which automatically assesses your controls against audit and security best practices. ByteCheck is founded by cybersecurity and accounting industry leaders with a combined experience of over 30 years. That knowledge is ingrained into the ByteCheck engine to provide you with a quality report that meets applicable standards. If you're in the market for a SOC 2, we have a special limited time offer for Hacker Valley Studio listeners. You can get 50% off their annual subscription to the ByteCheck platform and a free readiness report from the ByteCheck team. Reach out to ByteCheck at www.bytecheck.com and let them know Hacker Valley Studio sent you. This is a limited time offer, so get it while you can. In the studio today, we have Suzanne Falter. She's an author and a podcaster. And in this episode, Suzanne puts on a masterclass on getting past tragedy and getting back to happy. I was completely spellbound during this episode, so we hope you enjoy and let's jump right in. What's going on, everybody? You are in the Hacker Valley studio with your hosts, Ron and Chris. Yes, sir. Welcome back to the show. Glad to be back again. We're joined today by someone that has a truly moving story and has used that story to help so many people. In the studio today, we have Suzanne Falter, blogger and leader in the self-care movement. Suzanne, you've also authored several books, the most recent being The Extremely Busy Woman's Guide to Self-Care. You're also the host of the Back to Happy podcast and Self-Care for Extremely Busy Women podcast. I am. I am. And I'm so happy to be here with you guys. You got it all. I'm just an old writing hack and a podcaster who's been at it for, well, since you guys were eating cereal in front of cartoons, <laughs> probably. I'm just going to say. <laughs> yes. And not just a pun here, but with all the books, blogs, podcasts, you must be an extremely busy woman yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I try to do it all with a Zen-like calm. But I will say that the thing about it is I used to be a lot busier, ironically. My whole deal was to be a very driven, very bound for success, determined, do it all, leave no stones unturned, get the job done kind of uh, author and podcaster back in the day. And I built up a pretty successful uh, couple of businesses. And then I had a string of incidents really take it all apart for me and reframe how I feel about life. Basically, what happened was that back in 2012, I had changed my life and moved across the country and I'd come out as a lesbian and I was redoing my whole life and the relationship I was in ended and with it went the apartment 
that we lived in. And then my business, I suddenly realized I was completely burned out on my business. So my business suddenly ended. And then within a few months, my 22-year-old daughter, Teal, who had come out to San Francisco to live with me, dropped dead from a medically unexplainable cardiac arrest. And it was just so dramatic and it was so such a severe moment in my life and I was just so taken aback that I didn't really like even know what to do for a whole year. So I did nothing and I stopped working. And during that year and the year that followed, I lived extremely simply. I just lived with a friend in her guest room for free, basically. And I took incredibly good care of myself. And I discovered this whole world of slowing down, going within, learning from the loss you go through, learning how to roll with it, how to surrender to life, learning about these fundamental experiences that are what really shape us in the end. And I came out of it with a new respect and a new humility and a new sense of why being a driven workaholic isn't really a sustainable life. When we spoke at Podcast Movement a few months back and you told me your story, I was awestruck by it. And I knew that there was something that you had to share for not only cybersecurity practitioners that listen to our show, but really all people. I'd love to hear some of the things that you've learned through your own personal experience and also through your podcast, Back to Happy, about getting back to happy after something bad happens in your life. Okay, so I'm glad you brought up Back to Happy because that's a big piece of this story. When my daughter died, she wanted to be a healer. She was just a lovely, kind of insouciant, free, joyful person who lived very simply went around the world with her little guitar and her backpack. She'd work as a waitress, and then she'd go travel, and she played music for people. She was a singer. And when she died, I was left, as was her dad and her brother, with the decision about whether to donate her organs. And she really knew she wanted to be a healer. So we said, okay, great. Let's give away her organs, and maybe somebody will be helped. And in fact, five years later... On the beach where we scattered her ashes in San Francisco, I met the young woman who received her heart and her kidney and her mother. And the really wild thing about this, which I never in a million years could have predicted, was that her mother and I had immediate best friend chemistry. We just adored each other. She was like my sister. We just couldn't stop talking. And we got on the phone after that and we kept on talking and we're still talking And we do the Back to Happy podcast together. And one of the things I love about Debbie Granger is that she is the most resilient person I've ever met. She not only did eight years of keeping her daughter alive, who had congestive heart failure while she went on and off the transplant list, not only did she go through this incredible experience with her daughter's congestive heart failure, Then in 2018, her house burned to the ground in the Paradise Wildfire. And she had a son have a life or death illness as well. Now, this woman did this as a single woman with a disability and the best damn attitude of anybody I've ever met. 
So I was like, wait a minute, whoa, (laughs) you are a true survivor with this great joy for life. And we have to somehow get this out there. People can hear it. And people who are going through a lot of suffering and a lot of pain and anxiety and depression and all the things that bring us down, especially during a pandemic, that's what we're doing together on that show. That is absolutely insane that it all worked out that way. I I hear and read a lot of books and sometimes even fiction, but this is like a non-fictional story that is a little bit stranger than fiction. It's it's uh, <laughs> incredible that you all got together and built such a, an amazing bond, like a sisterhood. You all are both mothers. And one of the philosophies that I know that you live by is that crisis can bring forth positive outcomes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I really believe that we are put into this life for a reason, that we all have something pulling us forward, driving us forward. And it isn't just work often. Maybe the great accomplishment of your life will be that you were a person who supported the public library and kept it open. Maybe your greatest gift will be giving birth to an amazing kid or being someone who teaches a little child about gardening, something they adore, what, whatever it is, we have something we're all meant to bring to this life. And what I learned from Teal was that it doesn't have to be complicated. It doesn't have to be uh, elaborate. It doesn't have to be something that's, you know, you're very quote unquote successful. Her greatest success was her love for other people and her ability to be present and happy in the moment. And I never learned that until she died. And Debbie also has that gift. And she and I just bounce that volleyball back and forth all the time in our lives together. And it is so much fun to be able to keep Teal's healing message alive. P.S. So Debbie's daughter, Amra, who received Teal's heart and kidney, happens to work in a hospital. And not only does she work in a hospital, she wanted to do something in medicine after she was diagnosed with this terrible heart condition that really kept her from getting an education for about eight years. She she went off to take classes as soon as she was well enough after the transplant. And where do you think she took those classes, Chris and Ron? Very coincidentally, it was the very same college, City College in San Francisco, where Teal was just about to begin her studies to be a healer the very next day after her collapse. There are all these little intersections that we found that have taught us that if you go with the flow, if you allow life to connect the dots and show you the way, if you work to gain a better understanding of yourself and you listen to the little voice within, that is what will lead you forward. I couldn't agree more, especially with going with the flow. There's, you know, always going to be a crisis at some point. And if you allow yourself to continue on, then you will see a positive outcome at some point. But where does self-care fall into this? How do you also care for yourself when you're going through such a hard time when it comes to loss of a relative or even just trying to be less busy in such a busy environment that we're living in today? I do think the first thing you have to do is tune into yourself and you have to slow down a little to do that. Now, most of us are used to being on our screens all the time. Most of us, the average amount of time spent on a screen now, 
for on a phone even, not just screens, which is probably more than 10 hours a day for a lot of people if they're looking at a computer all day. People are on their phones at least four to five hours a day. So if you put away the screen for a while and you do something simple instead, you take a walk, you pet a dog, you read a book, you begin to slow down your central nervous system. This was the first thing I did. I actually gave away my smartphone and I didn't have a cell phone for that first year and a half. Yeah, I just thought anybody who needs me, they can email me. (laughs) It's pretty naive, but it is what I did. And after I did that, I started to realize your nervous system relaxes. And when your nervous system relaxes, you become clearer on what your needs are. This is actually an area of great confusion to a lot of people. And one of the great discoveries I made was that I didn't even know what I wanted. I thought I wanted a busy life and a successful business, but it turned out what I really wanted in my life was not the business that I had been building up and making money from. I wanted to return to my work as an author. And I began to write these little essays and I made a promise to myself that I wasn't going to rush to go back to earning money, that I was going to use my savings and live simply and do what it took. And that was a great decision. We are often afraid to make those choices because we think something terrible will happen to us. We'll never survive. For a lot of people, the pandemic has put them in that situation. And understandably, it's very worrisome. But sometimes you can have the opportunity to use that time to tune into what you really need, what you really want, and what the world and life and the universe is calling for you to do. Does that make sense? Perfect sense. And I think two things that I, that comes to mind, you talked about walking, you talked about petting your dog, slowing things down a bit. I think about being present in the moment. And also I think about mindfulness practices. Is that something that you advocate for and, and practice yourself? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I do meditate every day. But I also have really enjoyed meditative walking, which is you just go off by yourself. You don't have anything playing in your ears. You just take your steps carefully, thoughtfully. You think about your foot hitting the sidewalk or the ground. I try to walk in nature as often as I can because it's been scientifically proven that people who walk in nature have their central nervous system relax about, well, I don't know, 40 to 50% more in a 20-minute period. It's just about smelling the air and feeling what's around you. It's about learning to just be. And again, this is something I learned from Teal from reading her journals after her death. On nearly every page of this beautiful little beaten up red, worn spiral notebook she left behind is written the words, just be or be. And the idea being, if you just allow yourself to stop and be for a while, the answers to what is troubling you will bubble up. I can relate. Like when I first got into meditation and I heard about people meditating, they made it sound so easy. Like, just sit down and let your mind wander. If it goes too far out, just bring it back. And it's so hard to do that, especially when you're first starting out. I think that's one of the reasons why they call it a meditation practice. Mm -hmm. And for us, we work in cybersecurity, and there's a lot of analysts that are running around and trying to triage alerts and respond to incidents. And I'm sure you see the same with your podcasts and probably one of the reasons why you wrote your book, The Extremely Busy Woman's Guide to Self-Care, 
What are some things that people can do that are in this rat race and they haven't began their meditation practice yet? Oh, I love it. Okay. So whether or not you meditate and good on you, Ron and Chris, for getting some meditation in, before you begin to even worry about that, the first thing you got to look at is where you're being encroached upon. Now, I'm a big one for boundaries don't get enough airtime in our world. And super busy people, I suspect this may be true in the world of cybersecurity as well, you got to set some boundaries. You got to be able to go home at a reasonable hour. Or if you are in our current pandemic life, in your home working, you got to be able to turn off the machine, walk away and have your fun zone or your R&R zone or your mindfulness zone. You need to be able to create boundaries with yourself sometimes. You need to be able to say, it's okay. You don't have to compulsively overwork. You may have to say, hey, that was a pretty good thing you just did instead of being endlessly critical. I have a whole chapter in my book on perfectionism because I am a recovering perfectionist. Nothing I ever did seemed like it was good enough or even enough in general. I had a tape going that was all about how, you know, yeah, and so got such and such people on their email marketing list or so and so wrote their book in two weeks. It's just crazy stuff. Who cares? This is how long it took me to write my book. And seriously, perfectionism is just this little trick of the mind that is, it's trying to trick you into believing something that isn't even true for reasons I can't even fathom, probably playing some old tape from childhood. But our job is to get real, is to really look at what's happening now, to get some context, get some perspective, and begin to really appreciate who we are and what we can accomplish and how many people we're helping. So it can be tough to get into mindfulness or even appreciating yourself as you are when you're in a healthy state uh, mentally. Mm -hmm. But I've dealt with depression in the past, like depression to where your entire body hurts just being who you are Mm -hmm. and being able to meditate or do anything like that just seems impossible and unlikely to even help. But what would you say to those people that are in that, in the trenches of depression? How do you start to come out of that and then start to get into some of the health-minded things like meditation? Honestly, I think the first thing you have to do is get some help with it. And we are the first to say, oh, no, I'm good. It's just a little thing. I don't need any help. Not true. We do need help. We might need professional help. We might need a chemical shift to our brain. These things actually can help. Perhaps people are getting help, but they don't feel like they're getting the help they need. We are not meant to go through this life alone. And every time we ask somebody else to help us or to give us some support, we empower them to show up as the better person, the bigger person, the stronger person, the wiser person that they are. And that actually feels good. Now, I want you to know I was like a total lone wolf until my daughter died. One of the big lessons I learned was it is okay to just simplify, sit down, breathe, and ask for some help. You don't have to do it all yourself. And depression is a complex situation. It has many layers to it. I'm no expert on it. But what I would say is it helps to have positive information in your ear. That's why we did the Back to Happy podcast. It helps to stay off the media if anxiety in particular is a problem. It helps to listen to upbeat, positive, soothing stuff like this. It helps to give yourself and your, again, your central nervous system 
the soothing that it needs. We are living in worrisome times. And our biggest job to ourselves, our biggest obligation, before we even get to our kids or our spouse or our parents, whoever else is in our life, is to give ourselves the self-care and the shot of boostering the buck up that we really need. Because honestly, if we haven't got ourselves in our own corner, we ain't got no one. And sometimes you got to fake it till you make it. You got to just get yourself off the couch and you got to just go out the door and try and just try. I really love the fact that you mentioned help. When I was growing up, I grew up on the East Coast and asking for help, especially in a mentality way or an emotional way, might have seemed out of the ordinary for some. Maybe people would get uncomfortable by it. But when I moved to California and did a stint in San Jose, I learned just how many people had a therapist, how many people had a life coach. And what I learned is having help goes beyond just having help for your mental sanity. It can lead to so many things. I think that's one of the reasons why I'm so interested in mentorship, whether I'm mentoring people one on one or trying to scale my mentorship by doing a podcast or other work. There's just so much value in having that help. And like you were saying, staying off of social media is crucial. Like Chris and I, we spend a lot of time on LinkedIn trying to promote our brand. But there is this balance where you have to say, all right, this is enough. No more. I've you know, said my message. I've received several messages. And now I'm going to take a break and get back to what's most important. I think when you do that, you can now start serving your purpose. I do believe that. I'm so glad you mentioned mentorship. I'm so glad you're talking about all this because it's a subject that doesn't always get discussed. And I want to remind our listeners who will appreciate this, that there is something called the default mode. And when you are busy doing something, engaging with a problem on the screen in front of you, thinking about what you're going to make for dinner, brushing your hair for Pete's sakes, You are busy doing something. Your brain is engaged in that task. But when you sit and you actually just do nothing, your brain goes into this creative place called default mode. Default mode is where we untangle life's problems. It's where we sort things out that have to be figured out. So one of the things we can actually do to take great care of ourselves is absolutely nothing for 10, 20, 30 minutes a day, just nothing. And allow your mind to wander. Allow your mind, which is such a brilliant organ in the body, to show you what it needs, to show you what the solution is. This is why taking a shower is the place where we get the brainstorm. (laughs) That's default (laughs) mode, right? So I love that because we are actually designed for happiness. We're born perfectly aligned. We come in as these little babies and they cry when they want something and we cry when we need a diaper. It's life is simple, right? And then it gets complicated as everybody starts imposing their agendas on us and encroaching on our boundaries and shaming us and doing these things that are like, whoa, this is hard. And we lose our alignment. But ultimately in life, Getting back to that basic alignment, that's critical. That's why I do yoga. Yoga is a very big part of my self-care. And correctly done, it puts your body in alignment, but it puts your mind in alignment as well. I love yoga for all of the things that you just listed. One thing that actually just came up yesterday during one of our mastermind meetings is someone said, how do you have fun during COVID? 
because I think we are in this world where we feel like we have to be distracted by either something external to the house or then we get distracted by social media like we were just talking about. But then I said that you really can create your own world in your house. If you were in a, a 12 by 12 cell and all you had were books and, and some paper, you could create worlds upon worlds. But I feel like we are so used to being distracted in today's age, we forget about that. And so you talked about being able to sit and allow your mind to grow and stretch in silence. But then you can also expand upon that and begin to play with your kids or, or play with yourself and writing and, mm -hmm. and, and acting and singing and, and talking, making podcasts. There's so many things that people can do. What would you have to say to those people that feel stuck in this COVID time, they're in their apartment, maybe they're by themselves, they can't be with loved ones. What can they do to get back to happy? I love the question. And all the things you just mentioned are certainly fundamental. I add simple stuff. I like to do things with my hands just to keep my brain a little bit engaged. So then that default mode can kick in. I do jigsaw puzzles. I, I, I needlepoint. I sew. I make little things. <laughs> it's engaging with your hands in a focused, intent way, allows your brain to deliver information to you what you might not otherwise get. And of course, it helps to be in, in a, a relationship with somebody. It helps to not be alone. And many of us are alone. And that, man, you got to look at that. This is the challenge course of your life, especially as some states are going into more lockdown for the next month or two with the pandemic getting worse during the winter. We are having to step into a place of really being able to satisfy yourself, but you can't help but slow down. Now, okay, I'm going to bake a little. I got to be honest with you. I'm particularly fond of making granola, but it's do what you can to keep yourself entertained. You're going to end up being able to discover what you're made of. And we have such resources that we're not even aware of. People pay thousands of dollars to go to Outward Bound and these Pro programs that really show you how strong you are and how resilient. But that's what we're having right now. And this is a different kind of resilience. This is not hanging upside down off the 80-foot rappel line like you might be an outward bound, but it's like the mental outward bound. So it could be treated like, what will I do today that would really light me up? What could I create today? I invite listeners to think about what they did when they were little kids that they loved. Me, I loved needlepoint. I haven't done a needlepoint canvas for about 50 years. I am 62. Okay, 45, because I last time I did, I was about 16 or 17. It was my high school job. I taught needlepoint. So I was like, hey, maybe I could do that again. Oh, now I've got this whole idea about doing these little, you know, political needlepoints. I'm getting excited about this idea. And it's just this crazy thing. I'm making it up. It's something I'm, I happen to still be able to do. My body still remembers it. It's like thinking about things from your childhood that were fun can be very soothing and inspiring. And who knows what you might wind up creating. I love that. Is, is needlepoint like a painting, but with thread? Yeah, that's exactly okay. what it is. And you make it with wool and it's like a, a canvas with little holes in it. And somebody has painted a picture and you take wool and you sew in the picture. Mm. And it's an opportunity to learn a lot of different ways to stitch this wool. It's an opportunity to go into very ancient practices. There was an original form of Bargello, which was an old Italian needlepoint from, I don't know, 15th, 16th century. You're doing something that's been done a lot through time. 
And that's cool to me because I like history, you know. One of our Patreon members during this mastermind that Chris was just uh, referring to also was trying to get back to that point of trying to remember what he liked doing as a kid. Mm -hmm. And during that process, he found that there was a bunch of things. And then he started making a huge list of things that he should be doing. And then that turned into a bit of frustration. What would you recommend for playing and having fun and starting simple rather than trying to boil the ocean and recall all the things that you used to experience and enjoy doing? You used an interesting word there, Ron. You said should. And when we make a list of things we should be doing, it comes with the things we should be ashamed that we're not doing. I want to suggest that maybe there's another approach, which is just allowing that downtime, that non-time to show you the next right thing. What would be the next cool thing to do? And when we set out to kind of have fun, great intention, but it isn't often that fun. However, if you just are looking around, what's the next right thing? What's the next right thing? You might be like popcorn. I'd really like to make popcorn. Then you might be like, hey, popcorn and cranberries. That's something you put on a Christmas tree. Is there a Christmas tree around here? No, there really isn't. Maybe I should get a Christmas tree. I haven't had a Christmas tree for about 10 years. It's, that's what I'm talking about. What's the next right thing? One thing that I think about when we're talking about all of this and the stuff in the beginning, definitely when you're talking about folks being busy and when you're busy, you think that you're being productive, but that's not always the case. For me, burnout is when your tasks and the things that you're doing on a day-to-day basis aren't in alignment with your values and the things that you're passionate about. But I do feel like that if you find that nexus between your superpower, the thing that you're good at doing and your purpose, the thing that you feel like you were brought to this earth to do, once you find those things, you can dump all of your love and all of your attention into those things. Do you feel the same way about that type of concept? Oh, yeah. I actually wrote a book about that called How Much Joy Can You Stand? Yeah, because that's really what it boils down to. We often run away from that very well-articulated experience you just described, Chris. That's passion. And passion can be scary because passion may mean you have to change your life. Passion may mean you can't just own this huge power you have. It's going to upset somebody or it's going to mean you may have to leave your job or it's scary because who knows where it could lead, whatever. It doesn't even matter. Point is, once you find it, don't let it go. Don't let it go. And I say one of the keys to that superpower is getting in the zone with this passion of yours. And that means for me, I'm in writing is obviously one of my passions. And I sit down when I'm really happy with what I'm working on and I'm really charged up and I look up and three hours are gone. That's the zone. And the zone is such a beautiful place. The zone delivers us so many abundant gifts. The zone is really like that universal energy is working through us and making it easy. And we don't even know what time is, let alone where it went. We're just in the pursuit of this beautiful fish we're about to catch on our line. That's really what it's, that's really what this passion you're describing is. And for me, it's one of the fundamental keys to happiness. That book I mentioned, I wrote that because I was having, I was working in advertising when I wrote it. I just did not like this career of mine at all. And I really wanted to be doing something else. And I kept thinking, I've just got to write something that will 
cheer me up, that will move me out of this place of kind of feeling stuck and frustrated and like, I'm never going to be the writer I want to be. I'm always going to be writing TV commercials, you know? And in that moment, when I finally got inspired and fired up and I really owned my, it was like a little explosion of joy went off in my body and I never looked back and I went freelance and pretty soon that ad career was over. And I had publishers and I had books and I was doing it. And it was just a matter of surrendering. But I was afraid to surrender for years because I just didn't know what would happen. I couldn't believe I could make a living at it, that kind of thing. But these gifts, they're given to us for a reason. And all we have to do is just surrender to them and let them play out. There's someone listening to this and they're at a crossroads, whether they're trying to figure out how to get back to happy or they're figuring out what their purpose in life is. What's the one thing that you would want to tell that listener today? That you are on a lifelong quest of finding your way, that happiness is not this one moment that's fleeting, that'll end and never be seen again. It's an ongoing surrendering of our resistance to life. That if we can just let go of all those things slowly through experience, through trying things, through experimentation, we will be able to build more and more reserves for happiness and more and more happy experiences. It's like a lifelong pursuit, and it's a beautiful endeavor. It's the endeavor we were actually born to do. Incredible. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that if you are feeling depressed, please reach out to a professional, someone that can help you today. And also, if you're going to take up an exercise program, be sure to talk to your doctor. Suzanne, thank you so much for coming on here and giving us a masterclass on happiness. For the folks that want to stay up to date with you, the Back to Happy podcast, and your other podcasts, what are the best ways that people can do that? Well, you can find the Back to Happy podcast and Self-Care for Extremely Busy Women, great if you're a man, great if you're a woman, both on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, all those great old podcast places. And my books are all on Amazon, including How Much Joy Can You Stand? Excellent. We'll be sure to drop all of those in the show notes. Thank you so much, Suzanne, for jumping on the mics with us. And we'll see everyone next time. Thank you. If you found value in this content, it would mean the world to us if you shared it on social media, sent it to a friend, or talked about it over coffee. Thank you.